think now in the time of COVID, we're you know having you know we're having all these conferences, and it's just become so much clearer who people are willing and able to hear from, especially mm. on radical. Mm. Or activist politics, and so all of these conferences are online. They have all of these panels, and it's like, do we need to bring paper bags to these? Panels? I think I tweeted that. I was like, next time I come to a panel, I'm gonna bring my paper bag with me, and you know, people who got it got it. It's Alyssa here, your friendly neighborhood light-skinned Black woman of Jamaican descent. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And the reason I'm mentioning my skin complexion will become apparent soon. Real soon. So (laughs) I'm Brendan, your unfriendly dark brown-skinned Black hottie of Bahamian and Louisianian, I just made that word up, uh, Creole descent. (laughs) I also use she, her, her pronouns Welcome to the Zora's Daughters podcast, where we define real world issues and empower our listeners to join in academic and anthropological conversations with a Black feminist lens. Today, we'll be talking about what is actually a very sensitive subject that can bring up a lot of pain and trauma, especially among Black women, colorism. And unfortunately, our guest was unable to be with us today, but we do hope to have her on for a future episode. And we still have plenty in store for you all. So get comfortable. You're in for one today. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get started, we want to give a huge thank you to Bethany for donating to the podcast. We are so grateful for your support. And if anyone out there listening can spare some coin this month, you can donate by visiting our website, zorasdaughters.com. And of course, that's not the only way to support Zora's Daughters. Every like, share, and comment helps. And so thanks to all of you listening. We actually have some very, very exciting events coming up. That's right, events. So stay tuned to our episodes and social media. That's Zora's Daughters on Instagram and Zora's underscore daughters on Twitter. And girls, since we have so much to talk about today, how about we just get right into it? Um, yeah. Alyssa, <laughs> what's the word? So the word today, obviously, is colorism. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> colorism was coined by Alice Walker in her book of essays, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, and it was published in 1983. And so, of course, that's what we're going to be reading today. In that essay, she defined colorism as prejudicial or preferential treatment of same race people based solely on their skin color. And people have expanded colorism to highlight just more features than just skin color. So now people talk about colorism, they usually are thinking about different body types, different hair textures, which might be also called texturism, facial features, which is also called featureism, um, where proximity to Eurocentric features are preferred or typically black features such as wide noses and big lips are looked down upon, especially when they are on dark skin bodies. Right. And so colorism can show up in a variety of ways. It can be comments like, you're pretty for a dark skinned girl, or you'd be more attractive with straight hair, or his nose is too big, or I don't date nappy haired girls, for example. But colorism can also be really insidious. So in schools, there's like Tons of evidence that dark-skinned students are hyper-surveilled, that students don't compliment dark-skinned students as often as light-skinned ones. And obviously that has a lasting effect on on your self-esteem as you're growing up. 
And so like Brendan, you were, you know, you were a student here in the US, you were also a teacher, like, did you experience and or witness things like that? Yes. And I also grew up in the South, in South Carolina. So as a student, I really experienced or witnessed a lot of colorism. And it bothered me so much that I actually did my senior research project on it, wrote a whole 35 page paper at the age you of were, 17. You were forever, forever an academic. Like, you know, <laughs> I, day, day, you're a day one academic. <laughs> day fucking one. Um, and so the, the title of the paper was Colorism Within and Outside of the African-American Community. And as a teacher, I actually noticed that lighter skinned and non-Black Latinx students received fewer and less harsh punishments, mm. whereas darker skinned students were more likely to be bullied or see criminalized representations of themselves in textbooks when they did see dark-skinned people in textbooks. Right. And also darker-skinned students were more likely to be suspended at school. Mm-hmm. So this kind of punishment, um, y'all may know, actually extends into the prison system. And so thank you to Black Sophic on Twitter for bringing this to our attention. They tweeted out a series of just facts that were honestly, for me, were shocking to see just the numbers. Yeah. And like, did y'all know that dark-skinned women receive 12% longer sentences while lighter-skinned women receive 11% shorter sentences? Mm. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. And I mean, honestly... It's horrible that it makes sense, but it makes sense, right? Yeah. Dark-skinned women were actually 30% more likely to be arrested than lighter-skinned women. And so they attribute all of these figures to Harvard sociologist Ellis Monk, who conducted a study in 2014 that demonstrated that Black people were 36% more likely to be arrested. But being a dark-skinned Black person actually increased your chances by up to 30%. That's fucking wow. That's why yeah. you tend to see these criminalized representations of dark skinned people in textbooks. So th- these are the messages that you're getting about dark skinned black people from essentially childhood. And so right. when we talk about implicit bias and things like that, we really, we really just think that people are biased against black people. And then we don't think about the next level to that, mm-hmm. which are the biases that people have against dark skinned black people or the biases that they have in preference for light-skinned Black people. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is, that's something that you can clearly say, that you can clearly see play out in these statistics. Yeah. But so colorism, it isn't just limited to the Black community or even the African diaspora. So colorism, it's a global phenomenon and you can see it in fairy tales where princesses were fair, which is another word for beautiful. Fair skin in East Asia has traditionally been connected with class because only Mm -hmm. those of means were able to avoid working in the sun. And I was watching Indian Matchmaker. This is one of these... (laughs) (laughs) One of these uh, quarantine shows. Yo, Netflix has too many shows. (laughs) They do, but it was was great. Dee and I were watching it all the time. You know, we kind of binged it. And it was just really interesting. I was like, this needs some kind of anthropological, sociological analysis because a lot of the men and women, they're going to the matchmaker and requesting people who are fair. Mm. So there's this very clear preference for light skin, which of course is, you know, is, um, is kind of associated with caste, right? Mm-hmm. And then in Europe, there was also a preference for fair skin, for white skin, so much so that these like Victorian era women, they would poison themselves basically 
they would paint their arms and faces white with, mm. <laughs> with stuff that had like lead and ar- arsenic in it. I mean, mm. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was, people would rather die and not be, be lily white. Ridiculous. It wasn't until Coco Chanel, who was the absolute trendsetter, she was photographed on vacation and she had a tan. And so tanning really became fashionable for the white upper class. And so while colorism in the black community is, is very much tied to slavery, colorism is tied to classism and casteism around the world. But of course, that also served white supremacy and anti-blackness. Yeah, I mean, which is like really where this stems back to in thinking about complicated ways that colorism allows black people to continue the work of white supremacy um, Mm. among ourselves. And one of the ways that this happened historically was through the paper bag test, actually. And this paper bag test was used. It's not a myth for those of you who are like, girl, what you Mm -hmm. talking about? But the paper bag test basically was um, in order to be entered into elite black social spaces, they would hold up a brown paper bag at the door and like test it against people's skin and it was used to police like who was light enough to enter into these social spaces these dinner parties these college sororities and fraternities Mm -hmm. and also in other social spaces and there was a saying that was often associated with it which was uh, if you're light you're right if you're brown you can get down and if you're black uh get back and (laughs) (laughs) yes and it's like wow They would, I mean, I don't know if they would say this per se, but in the research that I've done, like this was the saying that they said was commonly associated with the brown paper bag. And essentially, as long as you were the tone of the bag or lighter, you could enter and parlay with the middle or upper class black folks. And these this type of social relation, right? This bl- this brown paper bag test dictated everything from who had access to higher education, who had access to certain jobs, and of course, dating and marriage. Yeah, that's something that we definitely see to this day. There are people who say curly hair or light skin or racially ambiguous women are preference. And I'm like, maybe it's a preference. Maybe it's anti-blackness. If I could do the Maybelline song to that, I would. (laughs) (laughs) It's important that you say that these tools were ways of Black people continuing white supremacy because there's there's a, a really great post by QTPOC Mental Health on Instagram and it said, decolonized beauty is dark skin, fat bodies, and features that threaten whiteness. And I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've actually had this conversation with like with a lot of friends, also with with Bay, you know, and we were talking about those moments where you'll hear black men say, "I'm I am pro black. I only date black and Latina women." And my oh, friend, yeah. <laughs> one of my friends, was like, "That's a loophole. If you're dating someone who is Afro Latinx, then that person is black." So I think that if you're, I think that people who are like, I. I only date black and Latina and I'm, you know, focusing on the Latina. I think that the Latina woman is essentially a way to date white or white adjacent women without Mm -hmm. catching that same flack for it and still Mm -hmm. being able to say I'm pro-black. And of course that's founded on, on colorism. I think you value that proximity to whiteness that certain Latina women give you. Right. And I remember the first time you were talking about the loophole and I was like, you know what makes sense? I know actually a couple of black men who um, 
who more or less date exclusively Latino women mm. and don't see themselves as anti-Black. And it's like, and these are non-Black Latino um, women to be specific. And so it's just like, oh, oh, okay. But part of that was like rooted in, in this archetype of the spicy Latina who's mixed features, right? So she's the best of both worlds. She's got the lighter skin, but she's got the nice hips, you know, the nice booty. She's got mm. the best of both worlds as far as what um, colonization can offer. Um, <laughs> and, but it, it, <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, I don't know. That's to be blunt. That's like how people talk about it, but it's like her anger then, right? The spiciness, her anger is much more tolerable than an unambiguously black woman. So she mm-hmm. can nitpick, she can nag and it, and it's seen as endearing or cute because maybe it's done in Spanish or, you know, something like that. That makes it a little bit more palatable. But I think that black men usually code their colorism as preferences because it allows them to escape a type of accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for research, you know, for that high school project that I told you about, I read The Color Complex, which might be a little dated now because it was published in like 2005. But mm-hmm. they theorized that the overwhelming preference for lighter skinned women is a desire to ascend certain markers of blackness um, and particularly seen through reproduction. So reproduction is such a vital part reproduction and desirability is such a vital part of understanding colorism Mm -hmm. Um, but also these lighter skinned women served as a marker of success for dark-skinned black men so Alyssa, oh dear (laughs) i feel like as a lighter skinned woman you might be able to speak to more of that desirability factor or marker of success like what has your experience been with colorism have you found that more darker skin men approach you versus lighter skin men? Like what, what has that been like? Mm-hmm. I think that's a good question. I did just want to say that I think it's really, I think it's good that that has actually been documented. <laughs> I feel like people are like, no, that's not true. It's not true that light skinned women are, you know, are a prize. And we're going to come to that conversation about the prize when we talk about what we're reading mm-hmm. this week. Um, but for me my experience, let's see. Dating in New York. Ooh. Ooh, let, me, <laughs> let me turn my mic off. Dating in New York. Ooh. Ooh. Um, <laughs> I don't think that I can, I, I don't think I would say that I've seen a particular pattern. Okay. From like thinking about the people who approach me. I probably just, I, I wasn't doing it long enough and ended up in a relationship. Here's how, you know, as, <laughs> as it happens. <laughs> but I think in terms of my, my personal experience with colorism, you know, it's kind of been two-sided. My mom is dark-skinned and my dad is from Treasure Beach. And the reason I say that people from Jamaica will understand why that basically says everything. People from Treasure Beach, they're, they're very light-skinned. Um, many have, you know, blue or green eyes. And so I think in the U.S. it, it would kind of be like high yellow would be the, yeah. the equivalent. I don't, yeah. know if you, I don't know if I've ever showed you a picture of my dad, but... Uh, I mean, I think I've seen a picture of him on your website. And my website? <laughs> I was like, I don't on know. On my Instagram? Want. On the gram? No, your blog. I'm sure I don't have a picture of my dad on there. Oh, uh, maybe I do. Okay. Yes. Anyways, I'm exposing <laughs> people going on going on my old blog. <laughs> oh, my bad. Um... <laughs> but yeah, I saw a picture of him and I was like, oh, 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, but so, okay, so. now I know that that's like a, a region in Jamaica where people look like this. Okay. People look like that. I understand. Yes. Okay. I mean, they're all over, but Treasure Beach is very infamous for, mm. for that particular look. Um, and so I guess here you would say high yellow in Jamaica, they, they say red. So my dad is red. But I think people always found my mom beautiful and they always told her so. And so I never really received these kinds of messages that dark skin was bad. But I also received messages that my skin complexion was good. So we would go to Jamaica when I was younger and my mom would always tell this story about maybe the first or second time that she took me and my brother. And so we were there and she said that some woman was just like, oh, she's brown and pretty. And my mom would like repeat this. She told this story so many times. It just, I could see that it really made her glow. Like she was really Mm. happy about it um, that people said that. So I think that that also kind of gave me this like this message that that light skin is good. And so in Jamaica, brown, it basically just means light. So people say she's brown and black means you have dark skin. So people will say things like he's too black. I want a brown or a high brown man. Mm. So my brother was with me at that time and he tans more than I do and a lot more easily than I do. And so he didn't get those same comments. And of course, I think, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, it was also probably that I was light in contrast to my mom. Mm. And so it was almost like they weren't just praising me, they were praising her for choosing the right husband and the right Mm. spouse to give me like a better opportunity to succeed in life. Wow. That said, I think my friends who were dark skinned, they always had like super nice, smooth skin. And so, <laughs> so I actually wanted to be darker. I mean, my mom was dark and, you know, I thought she was beautiful and a lot of people did. So, you know, I really, I wanted to be like my mom. She always reminds me how I used to like sit in the mirror and practice smiling like her. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. And so I didn't always feel black enough which I think is common among, you know, light-skinned women. That's kind of the, there are two charges almost that are, that are kind of like flung from, from one side of the coin to the other. And it's, well, dark-skinned people will say you're not black enough and light-skinned people will say, oh, you're too black. I think, mm-hmm. I think those are kind of like the, the two ways that we all try to harm each other and yeah. hurt each other in relation to skin complexion. And so, and then I also went to predominantly white schools. So when I did hear colorist stereotypes and things like that, it was in TV, TVs and movies. And mm. so I would hear like certain epithets around, around dark skinned people. And I didn't really understand them because they were usually American and I don't want to repeat them. But yeah, it was basically like anything on BT, especially Comic View. I don't know if you know what that is. <laughs> I know what comic view is. It's not before my time. <laughs> okay. I used to turn to BET at 3 a.m. like the rest of us here. Okay, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have been on about this one for a while, but I suppose that the way I would sum it up is just that I was more of a beneficiary of colorism. It was like, what are you mixed with? Or you have good hair. And I didn't really realize how differently I was treated from dark skin classmates until I was older and really looking back on it. You know, I have light skin privilege and with that comes pretty privilege. But yeah, how, how about you? What, what impact would you say colorism has had on your life? Uh, I, 
would say that I used to think of myself as a dark-skinned woman, um, but recently my dark-skinned friends who are just amazingly beautiful people have really been pushing me on that in ways that I, as a, a dark brown skinned woman, can take up space. So for those of you who don't know me um, and haven't <laughs> seen my face, right? I am dark brown. Sometimes in the winter I can get, I could be a little bit more mid-tone brown um but my shade if you use Fenty my shade is like 430 and my friends were like well you're not really darker skin unless you're like 4 450 or higher and I guess a lot like your mother I I never really heard that I was ugly growing up because of my skin tone um and actually when I was like a teenager when I was 16 I heard this like dark skin boy tell me in gym class that uh, I was brown enough for the both of us to have some beautiful brown babies together. Mm. And it was actually that comment. That's like the anthropological arrival moment for me um, <laughs> that actually started me on my journey as an anthropologist. But I think I'll leave that for like a bonus episode or one of our events. Um, okay. And as an adult, though, I've dated black people with a range of skin tones and I find now that lighter skinned or quote unquote mixed black people are actually the people who approach me more or and seem to be more attracted to me and I think it's because I am unambiguously black like my hair now mm -hmm. is in locks but before I had like tight coily hair um, when it was loose my facial features uh, and my body type make me like unmistakably black. And so for someone who might be sitting with those questions or am I black enough? I think being with someone who looks like me might provide some assurances. Mm. But that's like my psychoanalysis on it, to be honest with you. <laughs> Moving into like middle school, where, I, where there were like lighter skinned black girls in class with us. I don't remember them being treated differently. I do remember people thinking of them as like beautiful and then being approached more by boys. And that, I guess that would be my, more or less my childhood experiences. Like when I would be out mm -hmm. with lighter skin friends, they would be the one that would be like approached by boys or talked to by boys. Um, you know, back then, I guess I was like, oh, maybe I'm not that cute. But looking back, I'm like, oh, it was because they were lighter because it's not like I was not as cute as them. You mm -hmm. know, um, but yeah, I think as far as like within the gifted classroom, I was more or less at my particular school, just one of the brown skin girls that was there. We didn't have too many light skinned girls in school with us, um, at least in my gifted classes. If I weren't in gifted classes, I, I would be sitting in, in the range of, <laughs> really sitting in the range of black skin tones that's, that exists in like South Carolina public high schools. And I did notice that like lighter skin girls tended to stick together and like be friends mm -hmm. with each other. And sometimes they would be like these mean girl pods, but I never really noticed too much of a difference or I didn't really pick up on it. I think for me, it was what made me feel like I was accepted was my smartness mm -hmm. because no one outright was told me or gave me messages about me being ugly. I never felt like my skin tone made me ugly. Right. I think there was this really interesting tweet that I, that really resonated with me that went around and it was something along the lines of how old were you when you realized that you weren't ugly growing up, you were just around a lot of white people. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Like, 
you know, when I was growing up, boys weren't really that interested in me. Even in university, if I was out with my friends, they always wanted to talk to my white friends. Oh, mm. <laughs> so I just like <laughs> kind of made it into my like mid twenties, probably just being like, oh, uh, because I'm just like not that cute, or like I, you know, I just had a whole bunch of ideas about things, and then I was just like, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> Oh, it's not me. It's you. <laughs> it's literally just the, you know, these, these, invo- these environments that I've, that I've grown up in. So should we move on to our, our next yeah. segment now that we've kind of positioned ourselves, people know where we're at in our background and, and how we're, you know, approaching this conversation. I think we should move on to what we're reading. So Brendan, what are we reading today? We are reading one of Alice Walker's masterpieces. If the present looks like the past, what does the future look like in In Search of Our Mother's Gardens? Can I just say that I'm, I'm really excited that we're coming back around to Alice Walker towards the end of our semester. Mm-hmm. I mean, we started with her in our first episode. And so now we're reading some more of her work. It just, it feels right. It really does. And I'm just glad that we're able to have this full circle moment. And this essay has really like when I say snatch the follicles from my hairline, (laughs) I was like, yes. But if you have been living somewhere where you don't know who Alice Walker is, let me tell you. Alice Walker is an author, poet and activist who has penned a large number of works. Her most notable work is probably The Color Purple, which is turned into a movie and a TV series and has scarred Black girls like me (laughs) for (laughs) decades. In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, which we read some of today, The Temple of My Familiar, Meridian, and much more. She is also an Aquarius queen. (laughs) (laughs) I think we have an overrepresentation of Aquarians this semester. Um, And she attended Spelman College. Her literary works, for me, I think really elucidate like how Black women and girls navigate this racist, anti-Black, sexist, and violent world. And in addition to coining colorism, Alice Walker is also credited with coining and developing womanism, which is a Black feminist social theory that examines Black femininity and culture and emphasizes love and community among Black people. Mm-hmm. And so I think the phrase that, you know, people always reference in terms of what womanism is, is that womanism is to feminism as purple is to lavender. Mm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. It's the right order. I did that from memory, y'all. And y'all know I have a bad memory. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. I think I think it'd be really interesting for us to to kind of just like unpack that in a little short bonus episode and really think mm-hmm. about what that means. But I was just thinking about in- intensities and like intensities of color and what purple represents and, and all these kinds of things. And to just to try to understand that sentence for myself without going and Googling it like I could. <laughs> <laughs> so this essay, it starts out as a letter to a friend with lighter skin. And so she, Alice Walker, is addressing this previous conversation that they had about the divide within the Black community, the divide of color. I love how she just gets right into it. She mm-hmm. just, she's like, all right, let me just remind you of what you said in the conversation. You made this really dismissive comment where you said, I refuse to apologize for being light. I was born this way. It's not my fault. And so Walker, who situates herself as a definite brown, so neither Black, Black, as, as she says, nor light. And so she points out that it's like, it's not about blame or apologies. And she writes, quote, 
what black black women would be interested in i think is a consciously heightened awareness on the part mm. of light black women that they are mm. capable often quite unconsciously of inflicting pain upon them and that unless the question of colorism is addressed in our communities and definitely in our black sisterhoods we cannot as a people progress for colorism like colonialism sexism and racism impedes us and mm. quote so really it's about being sensitive to one another while also recognizing that it's not dark-skinned women's jobs to fix colorism. Yes, yeah, like y'all keep making it their jobs, our jobs is <laughs> not. And they do not need to be the only ones like tasked with the responsibility of addressing colorism, but often dark-skinned women are. And Walker states that the idea of alignment with Black Black women on the basis of color for light-skinned women can be seen as ridiculous and colorist in and of itself. Uh, and she says this mm -hmm. because she's saying like light-skinned women experiences of Blackness compared to a dark-skinned woman's could be as different right, as a white woman's experience as a woman compared to a light-skinned black woman's. So she's drawing these kind of these parallels and noticing these differences in experiences of blackness. And she roots it in understandings of light-skinnedness as being an escape from the violence of blackness, which could have been a truth right during slavery. Um, and it could be a truth during the 19th and 20th centuries after slavery was abolished. And she says that darker skinned women right, remind us of our roots to Africa and our roots in chattel slavery. And so when we reject dark skinned women, we reject ourselves. And what I really loved Walker that um, that sentence that she said where she's like, no one can hate their source and survive. Oh, right. And it's like, like, damn, yeah, like, whew. Well, I'm gonna think mm -hmm. I'm gonna get to it a little later, but just like, yeah, like no one can hate their source and survive. And so colorism is rooted in this belief that being lighter is a means to escape to freedom through approaching whiteness, but is whiteness freedom? I think we have to really think about that. What does it mean to aspire to look like something that is based on the oppression of other people? Mm-hmm. So Walker points to this very significant aspect of colorism, which, you know, has these deep roots in slavery of lightening one's burden by lightening one's skin. So mm. folks may know that it was common that the light-skinned enslaved people would be more likely to be in the house, in the master's house, quote unquote, doing that kind of work while the darker skinned people were out in the fields. In this, in this own documentary, uh, own the Oprah Winfrey Network, it's called Dark Girls 2. Mm -hmm. There's a woman there who talks about how she's really only come to acknowledge in herself recently, and she's, you know, 60s, 70s maybe. Um, she's only recently come to acknowledge or be able to articulate that she feels like she did her daughter a disservice by by not marrying someone lighter. And so she thinks that she gives her that she kind of gave her child an, an obstacle that wasn't necessary. And I think in the same mm. kind of way, that's that's almost like what that woman in Jamaica was complimenting my mom on. And so it really it it kind of highlights how deep the trauma of partis sequitur ventrum is. And so partis mm. sequitur ventrum, it means it's Latin and it means that which is brought forth follows the womb. So essentially it was the law or the convention that meant black children inherit the status of the mother. And now that was a reversal of the European convention where mm -hmm. people would typically inherit the status of the father. And obviously they were like, now nah, we can't have these like mixed race of children running around who are free. 
Right. And they didn't want their children to lay claims to their property. Exactly. This ties back to capitalism. But, you know, I digress anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Always, always. But I think that black women have this intergenerational trauma of feeling responsible for the position of their children and then also that possibility of escape. And so Alice Walker asked this question, what have we been escaping to? And so as you kind of alluded Mm -hmm. to before, it, it used to be freedom. But now she writes, quote, for some of our parents, it is as if freedom and whiteness were the same destination. And that presents a problem for any person of color who does not wish to disappear, end quote. Which is like, boom, like, bitch, how you say it like that? But anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think we were struck by like the same passage. And she mentions later in thinking about, you know, quote unquote, alleviating your children's burden, a mother who, who says, you know, a black boy would get along, but a black girl would never know anything but sorrow and disappointment. Right? And so this, this idea of doing a disservice to your children and recognizing that colorism is the issue, but instead of pointing to the larger structures and systems that actually make colorism the problem, Right? It's kind of this internalized responsibility um, that becomes manifest in the way that we choose to like partner and yeah. reproduce, which again is is another violence of, of white supremacy. And I don't think that whiteness is necessarily freedom. I think it's depicted as freedom, but that's only mm-hmm. because it's a relation of power that's built upon violent oppression, right? Like in order for white people who benefit from whiteness and white supremacy to be free, right, they have to oppress other people, right? It's kind right. of like a, a negative freedom. I think some people would Ooh. define it. Mm-hmm. And we all know. Or we should know, right? There is no freedom in oppressing other people because you always have to have somebody to oppress in order for you to be free. And then I think what Walker does for us is kind of turn this question and ask like, how do we liberate ourselves as Black people outside of understanding freedom as whiteness? And one of the ways that she points to um, as a necessary act of liberation is actually acknowledging the beauty of dark-skinned Black women. Mm-hmm. So inverting this word beautiful that was that is, I think, usually reserved for white women and light-skinned Black women and using that as a word to describe women who are historically and socially written out of white beauty standards inverts this power relation and and turns the idea of beauty really on itself. Mm -hmm. So Alice Walker's essay, it only starts as a letter. At the end of the letter, she explains that the essay that follows is for her friend, the one who she kind of opened the essay with, and she thinks of her as a younger sister. And so one of the parts that I really liked about this essay was that it's not just about colorism. I think that she's really demonstrating these womanist principles and and encouraging us to listen to young Black women. And I think that we often get caught up having the same arguments, fighting the same fights that we grew up fighting, and we don't really pay attention to what the up-and-coming generation Mm -hmm. is really facing Mm-hmm. And what they're struggling with, because they're because we're kind of like, well, we paved the way for you to have an easier life, so why are you complaining, kind of thing. But they still have challenges, and mm-hmm. if we are continuing to try to make the world better, who are we making it better for? Right, and it's for them. So actually, we should be using our experiences and our knowledge to help them. Yeah, I think, um, and thinking about 
right? This generational difference. I have been really struggling to see, and maybe it's just because I'm naturally just kind of cynical about things, but been struggling to see moves to be less colorist. I think what TikTok does and and these reels, I'm going to sound like a much older (laughs) person now, but like all of this technology, this new stuff kind of reaffirms these beauty standards while also providing more opportunities for representation for others and visibility for others, like visibility of darker skinned women. Like I, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm struggling to see the counter narrative come to the forefront though, because we still see lighter skinned women. We still, especially on Instagram, these kind of like yeah. Instagram models that come, that have a stereotypical skin tone, body shape, all of these things. And so I, I, I wonder what it does to younger folks. Uh, I think about my students who, my former students, I love y'all, um, some of them who were darker skinned and who really just felt some kind of way about their hair or felt some kind of way about their skin tone still, and then still had those messages reaffirmed in other teachers' classrooms. And like the work that I had to do as a teacher to kind of be a little extra encouraging, I guess is the word I want to use, but are a little more like, I would just be a lot more loving publicly on my darker mm-hmm. skin girls. And I right. knew some of my lighter skin girl students would res- were resentful of that because they were kind of used to receiving that kind of attention and, right. and care. But for me, it was just like, it's not like I treated them badly or even really worse, but I wasn't as effusive in my like, oh my gosh, you can be at the front of the class today and you can, you know, be mm-hmm. me for a day. Like I was not as effusive because I, I, I was trying to, I don't know, trying to balance the scales, I guess. Right. Yeah. I think it would be interesting to hear, hear what they have to say. What's Gen Z saying these days? Cause we're, we're millennials. <laughs> and we're, kind of, we're, we're out of the loop. Everybody's judging us. Yeah. Fun of us. So it would be interesting to hear and to listen to what they, you know, what they have to say and what they feel we as millennials have made progress on, but mm-hmm. where we're still lacking. Mm. But in any case, speaking <laughs> of generations, Walker, she turns to analyzing the representations of Black women in literature written by Black folks in the 19th and 20th centuries. And so in the 19th century, she finds that the characters were all fair, upper class, and beauty and, and Black beauty is represented as adjacent or essentially white. Mm-hmm. Even though the authors who are writing, they're the complete opposite. So, and and they're, it's not like they're spending time in these spaces. They really are spending time around the poor Black, 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 working class. Walker says that these depictions, they created a misunderstanding of what Black beauty is. And it isn't until their eyes were watching God, Zora Neale Hurston's novel, that this changed with the character of Janie. Walker explains that the relationship and particularly this this one scene surrounding tea cake beating Janie and the conversations that he has after that, it really helped her articulate the way that Black men see white and light-skinned women as prizes. Yeah, I mean, that really struck me on multiple levels. Like I remember being very uncomfortable with their eyes were watching God reading it in high school and not really being able to articulate what made it so uncomfortable for me. But then I think years later, 10 years later, um, <laughs> coming back to to reading this essay and thinking about it, I'm like, oh yeah, there were definitely elements of this um, that 17 year old me was able to pick up on 
but not really able to articulate. And one of them being recently, like I learned that my paternal grandmother was like mulatto, which in Louisiana just meant that she was like Creole. Mm-hmm. And my great grandmother was also mulatto. And it's believed that she was raped by a white man. And like that's how my grandmother came to be. And so I would see pictures of my grandmother at my father's house. And I would be like, who is this white woman, honestly? But um, <laughs> my grandmother could, could pass for white. And her husband, which was not my father's father, was a, like a very jealous man. And so he would beat mm-hmm. her often because other men found her light skin and her very straight hair, like attractive. And so my father believes that like her husband killed her because of his jealousy. Like he poisoned her essentially um, because she died at the age of 35. Wow. And all of this to say like this, this ability that Walker talks about, like when she discusses the beating of Janie and um, how that allowed Tea Cake to kind of affirm his power as a black man by beating and marking this near white woman. Like I felt that deeply, like my grandmother was beaten and was marked. Right. And that was mm-hmm. a way to kind of mark this black man's place in the world. And, and in some ways, as Walker kind of said, just, she, she sees it this way of like black men trying to, up in the violence of slavery in a way by by saying like I can mark this white woman and then thus I am doing something to like my oppressor kind of thing mm. which is troubling uh, to say the least yes. but I think what's even more troubling was like was the way that my father's side of the family kind of celebrates the quote-unquote mixing in our bloodline mm-hmm. so I'm like on my father's side I'm like one of the darker people most of them like I went to a family reunion. I was like, who are these white people? Well, they're my family. <laughs> um, right. And I'm like among the lighter people on my mother's side of the family. And so it was weird to sit there and hear one of my cousins go through the Ancestry 29 and say, oh, we have French in our, in our bloodline and we have this in our bloodline and we have Choctaw Indian this in our bloodline and we are not just regular black people. Mm-hmm. In reading this essay, it made me think about when Walker kind of ruminates on this other quote that says, what then can be the destiny of a people that pampers and cherishes the blood of the white slaveholder who maimed and degraded their female ancestor? And it made me think about that, like, on my father's side of the family, they really prize this mixedness and they really prize this this legacy of of violence right and Mm. it's not seen as such it's seen as a as something that propels them towards freedom right towards a a type of um middle classness it's Mm -hmm. i I was just my mind was like blown like i was like oh my gosh (sighs) this whole essay just was it was illuminating edge is gone that's gonna be my (laughs) that's gonna be my academic way of saying it it was really just gone (laughs) because of the way that she does talk about that color hierarchy and particularly who makes use of it right and she comes for like she gathers all of your face gathers the black (laughs) leaders she's like even pro-ass black pan african marcus garvey's white marcus garvey's wife Uh, uh, Freudian slip. slip. Um, Marcus Garvey's wife was light. Frederick Douglass's black wife, so his first wife when he was enslaved, she literally helped him escape slavery. This pisses me off every time. (laughs) Sold the outfit that he wore to escape. And then in freedom, married a white woman. 
Oh. And so it really reiterates this pattern of, of freedom as lightness, mm-hmm. or at least the, the idea of that really being engraved and engraved. <laughs> I'm having a lot of weird words. Um, really being ingrained in the mentalities of, of Black people. Mm-hmm. And so while these men were affirming Blackness in the abstract, and, and that's Walker's quote, light remained right, you know? And so the one thing that she does do, she, she shouts out Malcolm X for his, quote, radical and revolutionary act of marrying and loving openly a, a Black Black woman. And so it just says a lot about how ingrained colorism is that loving a dark-skinned Black woman is, is revolutionary. Mm. And in doing that, in, in kind of shouting out and talking about Malcolm X and saying that that is, she's also emphasizing that colorism is political. Like this is, mm-hmm. this is it, it has a political nature and it, it is something that needs to be discussed and talked about. And I think that what happens when dark-skinned Black women do start bringing up colorism, the response is that they're being divisive. Mm-hmm. I think that's especially common among cis black men. They'll say that's divisive. Any women's issues are devices, divisive and we need to be united. Right. And of course, <laughs> these are the same men who are one, marrying light-skinned women mm-hmm. and two, will turn around and call those same black women traitors to the race for marrying white men or marrying men outside, outside their race even yep. though they weren't checking for those black women anyways. Oh man, it's like the possession, mm-hmm. the patriarchy, the colorism, all wrapped up. All in one. And so Walker, she does talk about that, that, that black women aren't often seeking out relationships with non-black men. Definitely not in the same ways black men do because Alice Walker herself was married to a white, to a white man. Yeah, that ended pretty quickly though. <laughs> she says it in the essay. She was like, I'm engaged to uh, a, like white, a white New York lawyer or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that we'll get to that a little bit later when we talk about like academics and mm. color politics, for sure. I also wanted to like mark when thinking about black men marrying black men, cis men, and and well, I don't know if I want to get into the gay shit today, but like. The- <laughs> It it happens across sexualities and gender identities. Um, I'll put it there. But this part um, where she talks about like black men seeking out fat white women because there's more whiteness to love. I don't know if you like, if you caught that. I did. I did. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I I really don't think she's being cheeky here. Like, I really think that she's pointing to something and, and you know, I will, I'll leave it there because there are other things I could say. So I'm just going to put a period in that mark. I don't think she's being cheeky. I, I really like the way that she closes out, right? So she says that W.E.B. Du Bois's vision of liberation was very much a man's vision. Absolutely. Yeah. So he says that the issue of the 20th century is the relationship between the lighter and darker races of various continents and islands of the sea. And so Walker points out that Du Bois sees clearer across seas than across the table or the street. In particular, he doesn't attend to what's happening within the family, within the community, within the race. And it just speaks to the way that intellectual thinking 
and conversation has always ignored the home or any domain of the woman as not being a serious object of study. But yeah, we can really see the way that in the home and the family and the community, these have always been sites where society and social ills are reproduced. And this is particularly the case in the Black family. Oh, like, you know... Boys, I have just so many bones to pick, but his inability to see black women. And when I use the word see, I'm I'm drawing on Hortense Spiller's idea about black women being misnamed and kind of, you know, if you Mm. want to learn more about what we think about Hortense Spillers, feel free to listen to that episode. But his inability to really see Black women, especially darker skinned Black women, um, as women to revere, he celebrates the rape of his female ancestors um, in several of his essays by always pointing to his Dutch great-grandfather. Like, he'll just throw it in when you don't even need to know that he has one. Um, Which, and he mentions that, and the flip side of that is, right, like, how how did this Dutch man become a part of your ancestry? Mm -hmm. He he raped your your great-grandmother. He laments, or at least I read his essays as him lamenting that it cannot be seen as an equal in white society, despite his light skin, his hair, his education. And his early vision of liberation was definitely centered around being able to move freely as a white person and to to be able to marry white women. Mm. And I think... In his later works, because you see kind of this like disjuncture between his earlier work and his later work, I think by the time he gets to his like 50s and 60s, he's disillusioned and he's like, oh, no matter how many accolades I possess, no matter how many poor black women I disparage in my sociological Mm -hmm. studies of the city, I will always be seen as a black man. I will always have the stain of blackness. Many scholars see that as his kind of radical face where he is able to move away from integrationist politics. But I see that as him accepting his place in the world as a black educated man. Mm -hmm. And when he writes about dark skinned black women, he writes about them as being part of the reason why the black race won't be uplifted. In his sociological studies, he demonizes poor black women and relegates them to the realm of deviants. And these poor black women have loose morals and their inability to kind of adhere to white standards of life and family are the reason why black people cannot ascend. Hmm. I'm, I'm starting to understand your... A little gripe. You know, <laughs> sociology. I, <laughs> part of it has to do with the voice. Part of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I loved this essay. I think it really has helped me articulate why in my adulthood I've kind of become uncomfortable about people complimenting my hair and even my looks. And in recent years, I've, I've kind of just come to recognize that it is praise that's given with more ease because of my complexion. And so I've also felt... And like in in particular coming from black men, that there is a particular value that comes with being with someone of my complexion. And so a friend, you know, we're having this conversation about black men who make it, who become successful. And she pointed out to me that even though I am unambiguously black, if a successful, quote unquote, successful black man is going to be with a black woman, it's more likely to be someone like me. Mm -hmm. And so... I know that these compliments are kind of based on a subtle and simultaneous diminishing of dark-skinned Black women. And so this like 
inflated self-worth that I may have had when I was younger because I kind of knew that within the Black community, people valued my skin complexion more. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of taken on this like different valence or connotation now. Like I feel kind of ambivalent about it because it's like, I question whether it's really deserved. Like, does this person really think I'm cute or is it just because I'm light-skinned? Like I've heard a a lot of people (laughs) talk about like certain celebrities who are overrated. They're like, if the thing is like, if she had dark skin, would people still be fawning over her that way? Or is it just because she has curly hair or light skin or hazel eyes or whatever? And I definitely think that there are some, I'm not going to name anyone, but. I think there are so many overrated people just in general. Um, (laughs) But I would say that, I mean, in response to what you just said, like, I don't really know if it's useful in like sitting in that kind of uncomfortability with your hair and looks because of other people's internalized anti-blackness. Like Mm -hmm. you're cute because you are. And at the end of the day, there's a privilege with that that can be used, that can be used to disrupt dynamics, right? Right. And you're, I think a lot of dark-skinned women, especially in dark girls, were kind of talking about how light-skinned women would lament being like there was one light-skinned woman saying people don't see me as smart they only see me as pretty Mm -hmm. and it's like so then I have access to all these things because I'm pretty but I want people to value that I'm smart too and so I'm just so oppressed and it's like Mm -hmm. not saying that that's what you're saying at all but that's that can be what's what's said and it's like but girl at the end of the day you still have access to these things so what's like what's really good like does it does it matter does it matter or like what does it do right to to ruminate if you're not disrupting these dynamics where I mean even at Columbia like I've seen people discriminate against darker skinned black people or um and myself you know being positioned as a darker skinned woman um as aggressive and seeing that you were you were never in the room when this would happen but like there were like other people who could have spoken up or like who could have positioned themselves and said something and pushed back mm-hmm. and chose not to and so I see a lot of lighter skinned people playing into dynamics of discriminating against darker skinned people instead of using their palatability um, to disrupt. And I feel like there are just some things that people would rather hear from you than from me. And I mean, I know it's because I'm not really that nice, but also, you know, (laughs) as a darker skinned woman, like I tend to have to monitor. You don't have to be nice. You don't have to be nice to your oppressors. I don't. I don't. I don't have to be nice um, and I choose not to be nice. Um, but like, because I am darker skinned, there's already the assumption that I am going to be mean. Right. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. I have to monitor my tone. I have to dress a certain way. I have to wear my makeup in a certain way to be perceived as like beautiful or even sometimes to feel beautiful. And mm-hmm. I think in conversations around colorism, people want to move away from desirability. Like they want to say, well, colorism has affected me so much more than, than how I'm dating. But desirability, in my opinion, is not just about who fucks who or who marries who. It's, it's, it's really about how feminized people, especially black women and girls, move through the world. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, the shit that's like unrelated to dating and relationships So we talked about prison, we talked about schooling, right? It's still yeah. framed through a certain politics of desirability. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I think, I think that's fair. 
And I appreciate you calling me on that. Thinking with Audrey Lord, you know, she writes that our feelings are paths to knowledge. And I think that that discomfort I feel has been trying to tell me something and also push me into action. And so that knowledge and that 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 feeling can also be transformed into a disruptive action that, right. that, that makes some trouble. Right. And so I appreciate you pushing me on that as well. And also what you said about people being more open to hearing, like who people are more open to hearing things from. I think one of the women, like right at the beginning of the Dark Girls 2 documentary says that. And I think it's something that's become very clear now in academia because of all of our Zoom conferences and panels. And I think a lot of people have talked about it as well. It's just like the aesthetics of these panels Mm. that call for letting anthropology burn or for Mm -hmm. abolition and education and all Mm -hmm. these kinds of things. They send a very particular message about who academics know. So who is in their networks and who can even be heard saying radical things. I think that's interesting, but we are going to get into that because Walker makes this super prescient statement that in the 21st century, the problem will still be relations between the darker and lighter people of the same races, call back to Du Bois, and of women. And so let's just move forward to the part where we do that Black feminist thing of discussing what's happening across the table and the street. Who liked that callback? Hey. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I hear what you're doing. Um, <laughs> now is the time for our segment. Like what? What in the world? What in the world? <sighs> so, like, we both are like sigh. Um, like, where do we even start? Okay, I think this is something I want to go back to the to the loophole thing. <laughs> Let's go back to the loopholes <laughs> and kind of the flip side of that. So, this is this is completely not scientific. This is purely anecdotal from my own experience, which we value here in Black feminist land. Mm -hmm. (laughs) but personally I have tended and this is not a rule I have tended to see when white men are in relationships with black women they're with as Alice Walker would say black black women and I've always I've kind of always noted that and I find it really interesting Mm. and so I think that this you know the essay that we just read it kind of helps me think about my my hypothesis about that and it's you know these cis white men have already won the social hierarchy jackpot so they don't really need the That's boost true. of being accompanied by a white or light-skinned woman. Whereas for black men, a white or racially ambiguous woman is a status symbol. It means that he's made it as we kind of, you know, as we talked about earlier. And of course, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to reduce it to just that. There's absolutely more right. to it, um, like socialized standards of beauty and, and all of these other things. But that's just been my very non-scientific take on it. I mean, yeah. I think about even in the commercials that we watch, right? Like, yes, I know we've all, or maybe, I don't know, people might not be watching TV like me, but I have picked up on what Target and Walmart and et cetera have been putting down with these couple <laughs> arrangements um, mm-hmm. and like the lack of darker skinned people being paired together in these couple relationships that they show on these TV shows. And I think that even within academia, like it's difficult to find a couple where both people are dark skinned. Mm. Mm. Usually I'm thinking about people that I see in passing at conferences and things like that. And I usually see black men with uh, light skinned or white women. And there's mm. only one light-skinned Black male academic that I know personally. 
who has a dark skinned wife. Hmm. So I wonder if people did the tests that, you know, Maya Angelique did where she was talking about the rappers and their light skinned wives. I wonder if people did that hmm. for academia, what would be revealed? <laughs> uh, <laughs> what would be revealed? <laughs> a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And I think, you know, we also saw that in, in the ad for the series Black Love on, on the Oprah Network. Mm. You know, it was like the network, people were really critiquing the ad that came out and they came out, the network came back and said, we do have dark skinned people on the show. Nevertheless, the ad only featured, you know, women lighter than a paper bag on it. Right. Like, who do you see as marketable? Yeah, and who do you see? And then, and then what message does that send about who's worthy of love and Black love at that? Right. And so I, what really was like disturbing for me was that all of the wives that they showed on the ad could pass the paper, the paper bag test. Like some mm. of them, you had to be like, black, love, raise eyebrow. <laughs> um, and we know black-ish. what that is. Black-ish, love. And would you know, Kenya, Kenya Barris has a whole, mm. you know, a fantasy. Whole series. Two series whole two series about the ideal black wife who is a biracial um, woman. And so what these messages tell us, of course, is that like one thing, first things first, they do not believe in queer couples as being an example of black love. Like let's, and I think that's actually a commonly held belief. There was, there was one though. I remember there was one in in the the second ad or I can't remember, but I remember there was, (laughs) there was a tweet and someone put a paper bag over the other couples. And I do remember them doing that with the queer couple. Well. The paper bag. So there was one queer couple. And I think both, I think both but, of them. But, but one is not representation. Like one, right. one is not equivalent to inclusion and diversity. If you want to use For sure. that language. For sure. And it was like, but like both of them could pass the paper bag test, I think, with that couple. So it was just yeah. like, when queer folks are included, what do they have to look like? And I'm going to leave it at that. Mm-hmm. But it also like says and sends the message that women who look like me or who are darker than me are undeserving of a certain type of black love. Like dark skinned women are not seen as the prize. Uh, Alice Walker tells us right, she's a marker of slavery, of poverty, of an Africanness that must be demonized in a white supremacist culture. And so one cannot ascend and be wealthy and, and be black, black. Right. So mm-hmm. Walker in her essay even talks about this, like how the black middle class throughout the 19th and 20th century hated darker skinned black women and specifically those who were in the working class and discriminated against them because they represented, they were a little too close to that, the slavery past. Um, And even if we look at the civil rights movement, like, honey, (laughs) Martin Luther King Jr., I said this already before, so I'm not gonna repeat myself, but I do believe (laughs) in my unscientific opinion that one of the major pushes behind integration was so that black men could be with white women without the fear of direct violence, like, like lynching. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I mean, we talked about this in another episode, but you know, we also saw this with, with Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks was chosen to be the face of, of desegregation because she was a light-skinned woman. She was more palatable. So right. people would be more empathetic towards seeing her get beaten up and arrested probably because she's markable as much as she is marketable. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, 
as I, as I was kind of saying in, in, in the previous segment, like I'm really, I think we're really starting to see how colorism extends into academia. And now we're touching on like very, very touchy territory, right? Because people don't like to talk about this. And I think now in the time of COVID, we're, you know, having, you know, we're having all these conferences and it's just become so much clearer who people are willing and able to hear from, especially mm. on radical mm. or activist politics. And so all of these conferences are online. They have all of these panels. And it's like, do we need to bring paper bags to these panels? I, know, I think I tweeted that. I was like, next time I come to a panel, I'm going to bring my paper bag with me. And, you know, people who got it, got it. And we've been hypothesizing about it as well. Is it like, okay, well, is it just an effect of people asking who they know, like who they know will help them out? And, you know, as you talked about earlier, light-skinned people, they tend to have mostly light-skinned friends and vice versa. But is it, you know, could it also be just the fact that the ivory tower itself is more welcoming to light-skinned people. And I think that's something that we've talked about is that despite both being black and at the same institution, our experiences around anti-blackness are quite Mm -hmm. different. And so for me, it's among many things, but I think it's because of my complexion, but also because I'm an international student and because my research is is easily legible as as anthropological in in the kind of like traditional sense. And so for me, I, I receive more along the lines of microaggressions than anything blatant. Yeah, I mean, I guess in my experience, the most striking thing that has ever been said to me was that um, I shouldn't expect to produce any type of scholarship that would actually be good or groundbreaking. And I didn't internalize it as colorism because this was coming from a white person. But I I think it is interesting in hearing and talking to you and talking to another light-skinned Black woman that's in our program. Hey, girl. And, hey. Uh, <laughs> and also talking to another like darker-skinned woman in our program. And she and I tend to have similar experiences along the lines of like being called hostile or being treated as Mm. hostile, even when we're, we are not being hostile. And so I do think that that is like, I think I'm gonna have to do, maybe we could do like a little thing among ourselves at our institution. Like Mm. what's, what's really happening? Because I think at an institutional level, they're like, all y'all are black, but then there's, there are variations in our experience for sure. Absolutely. I think, yeah, I think it'd be really interesting to do a little round table around that. Which I think brings us to our next example here. Oh, Lordy. (laughs) We have talked, we've mentioned Jessica Krug in in previous episodes, but we wanted to bring it back to her here and to use her as like a flashpoint to think about the fetishization of light-skinned and um, Latinx identity in academia. So much to say, so much to say. I thought it was Jessica Krug. Oh, well, you know, I always pronounce. I like the Krug. Um, I'm going to go with that. And you know, people, folks know that we're talking about the same person. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, Jessica Krug is one of the many, not just her, but many recent academic Rachel Dolezals. All right. Why do they always have these difficult to pronounce last names, by the way? Oh, like using last names to pronounce. I don't know. Okay. It adds to your spiciness. (laughs) (laughs) So she is a white woman and she has been claiming Afro-Latina identity. And so she's been going by the name Jess Labomalera in activist circles. And I believe that she's from Kansas. 
Yes, I believe in Kansas. And so in her confession slash apology that she wrote on Medium, which, you know, she published before people could out her, she said that, you know, she first claimed North African ancestry and Mm. then she was claiming a generic Latina ancestry. Mm. And then she settled on being Afro-Latina from El Barrio. Mm. And I'm just like, she was just out there being like, I'm every Negro. (laughs) (laughs) What was she doing? (laughs) Yes, definitely. I mean, it just highlights so much about colorism within Black communities. I think that she definitely used her quote unquote racial ambiguity um, to claim every type Mm. of Black there is it could possibly be. Uh, and if you saw pictures of her as a child, was when she was revealed to be a white woman. It was like a you know very blonde, brown hair. She just had a large nose, and so what she did to help assume her identity was dye her hair black. Mm. And on top of that, she developed this kind of traumatic backstory where she said, "Oh, I don't know who my father is, but my mother is a." a a darker skinned black woman who was raped by a white man. And it's, it's, but that's like the formula for white women to pass as black. Apparently you have to have a fake traumatic backstory. And then you, you know, add into the recipe, some dark curly hair, get you a little slight, little slight tan. Mm -hmm. uh, And you know, bam, boom, black woman. Um, And (laughs) (laughs) I think people really accepted her and all these other white women who are now being revealed as black because of their own internalized anti-blackness and they were able to give them this power and status because these women you know represented what was written that alice walker talks about written in these literary traditions where we see the tragic mulatta which shows us that the ideal black woman is actually not black at all um like she's actually not black at all the ideal black woman um is as far away from that as possible. Uh, no, so like, that is. Uh, <laughs> Brendan, I'm glad you brought that up. So they're able to to kind of encapsulate that and pick up on this fantasy of transcending and escaping blackness. And so black people are like, oh, here's power, here's status, you can have it. Um, and my friend Naomi Simmons Thorne, like she was talking, remarking about this on Twitter as well, like. She was like, call me what you will, but I don't find these stories unrelated to the fact that light, biracial, multiracial slash ambiguous women are the standard representation for Black women in the media. So these Black women in academia are these white women pretending to be Black women in academia are capitalizing on this fetishization of Black women, right? This, the ideal, this idea that the ideal Black woman is actually not Black at all to a sense of power within within our communities. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sick and tragic. Absolutely. It's awful. And I remember reading the tweets after all of this was revealed and people were saying, you know, I, I knew her in this fellowship program or, you know, I, I was around her in this, um, you know, at this conference and she was always very loud about her identity mm-hmm. and she always made others feel not Afro-Latina or Af- Afro-Latinx enough Mm-hmm. And did you see where she she ch- sent somebody um, a Venmo request for her time and energy as a as a black woman explaining certain aspects of 
I did. I did see that. Wow. Just, Just, and, and then the, to capitalize on it as well. Okay. Literally. <laughs> and so then to see people being like, you know, I just, I felt that there was something off people would say, but that, you know, they didn't, they just thought that, you know, they kind of chalked it up to trauma, like her trauma. And they were like, well, you know, mm. who am I to say like, she's, she's not black or she's not Afro-Latinx or whatever. One, I think that that shows how much black women have been gaslit our entire lives period to be like i feel there's something wrong here but let me just look past it because it's like i said on the last episode we're just gonna let everybody on the soul train without checking their tickets Mm. so it's like the reaction to this exclusion is a kind of hyper inclusion yes makes us gaslight ourselves literally it's like some of y'all soul train tickets were literally made in photoshop and i'm gonna (laughs) let y'all unpack What I mean by that. And I think something that was like so disappointing to me when all of this came out was just the number of dark skinned black women who talked about how they, as you were saying, like talked about how they believed her when she would say she was black because they had never been believed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what? Wait a minute. Um, One thing that people will always believe about those of us who are unambiguously black is that we're black they will not believe anything else about us because of the fact, right? That mm-hmm. we are actually black. We will not be seen as victims. We will not be seen as, you know, insert descriptor here because of our blackness. So to, to kind of, to flip that around and be like, oh, this person who doesn't actually look like me and doesn't experience the same type of violent experience that I would experience as a black woman, um, but I'm going to believe her and allow her to take up space and power because of my own trauma around my undeniable visible blackness, I was just, I was heartbroken. Mm -hmm. It was like, I'm going to extend the grace that I've never received to someone who, who would get the grace, doesn't need it. And who would get it? Who would, it's like, that's the other thing about this. It's like these white women who are outed. It's like, y'all could just be white and still have access to these things. And so I think about like all of the money and access and power that she took away from actual black women Mm -hmm. just because folks were willing to give her the benefit of the doubt. And the number of black men who came to her defense when black women would call her out on her troublesome backstory, like active black women activists who were like, actually, this don't add up, girl. And the black men would like come out in, in her defense and like actually harm these black women hmm. right, and harm their reputations. And they claimed that Jessica Krug was uh, Krug. their best friend. Krug, Krug, Krugalicious um, was their best friend. And I think even though these black men, a lot of them were queer, right? There's still a certain hmm. desirability politics that plays out within these relationships. And it's, uh, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. I mean, with all of that said, we're checking tickets, y'all. <laughs> if you're trying to get on this soul train. Yeah, on the Zora Daughter soul train. <laughs> we want to know. And I think, I mean, we're seeing now these like academics who people would call white passing are actually putting pictures of their family, like actually like being like, okay, mm. let me, let me write this story of myself. Um, so that way I can, I can have some type of backup when people try to come for me. I mean, there was that tweet and it was like, if you have to post photos of your grandparents to prove that you're black, you can say that you have yeah. black heritage without, without claiming the identity. Yeah. 
you that's can say, fine. I have African ancestry. Yeah. And it's cool. That's fine, but, y'all. Because what I'm, what I have been really just like witnessing though is that people who are quote unquote white passing, right, will be, will be, or operate as white in white spaces. Mm-hmm. Like they will not say, oh, actually, gotcha. I'm a, <laughs> you know, gotcha. Y'all let me in. And now I'm about to invite a whole bunch of black people um, and, you know, shake shit up in here. It's like, oh, actually, I'm going to rest in the fact that you see me as one of you mm. and then claim that I am also representing black people. And that that deeply troubles me. I think going back to what you were saying about desirability politics and how that plays out, I think we have to talk about skin bleaching oh, and, gosh. and like the harm of that. And so in Jamaica, skin bleaching is an epidemic. It's like vibes cartel. Like if you look at a picture from today compared to like 10, 15 years ago, you're like, okay, mm. why do you look this way? And so it's not just about being thought of as more attractive, although of course that's included. But you know, as you've said, desirability politics isn't just about sexual or erotic desirability. I think it's really pointing to an aesthetics. And aesthetics isn't just about how something looks. It's also about the coherence and the effect or power that that coherence then has. So in Jamaica, you're more likely to find brown people in higher paid, customer-facing jobs because light skin is associated with professionalism, mm-hmm. with the upper class luxury, and so on. So they fit in or they cohere with the image a company or a brand really wants to portray. And I think Nicole Dennis-Benn's book, Here Comes the Sun, deals Love with colorism. That and skin bleaching in this really nuanced way. So it follows these two sisters, Margot, who works at a resort in Jamaica, and she's working there to send her younger sister to school. And the younger sister, Tandy, she suffers. Like she does these crazy things to bleach her skin lighter. And she Mm -hmm. goes so far as like, wrapping her skin in cling film with the bleaching cream on and then going in the sun. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's awful. I read that first year mm. in graduate school and of course, and colorism was the huge part of what made Margot marketable as far as, because you learned that she um, was engaged in sex trafficking as a child um, and then does sex work as an adult. And so you just learn the dynamics of like how and why that's possible. And and, and most of it is through skin color. And um, yeah, it's a really wonderful book. Highly recommend. And I mean, I think about like, we've talked a lot about colorism's dynamics in the US, but I feel like in Jamaica, a majority black country, it makes it makes sense. But also it's kind of like, like, why skin bleach in Mm -hmm. a place where you're surrounded by black people yeah i mean i'm not gonna say i'm i'm an expert i'm I'm kind of just making an educated guess skin bleaching is very common there it's not common here but it's also common in certain parts of africa of course in india and mm-hmm. some parts of southeast asia where you know bleach is in every skincare product mm. but there's there's a definite hierarchy of color and so it does have some roots in slavery but it's also rooted in in class so light people Light-skinned people in Jamaica are the upper class, the working class is dark-skinned. And so I think that's why you could kind of see Bob Marley attain the success that he did. Because at that time, a weed-smoking, radical (laughs) artist 
with dark skin, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, would not, would not, would not happen. But those same politics of desirability or aesthetics worked in Mm. his favor in that people were like, okay, well, he's more acceptable. He's more palatable. So I can listen to this music and hear him. And if he's doing it, somebody who is, whose father is white, if he's doing it, then that makes it a little bit more acceptable because it's almost being co-signed by the upper, upper classes, just by virtue of his skin complexion, even though he wasn't of the upper class. That's so interesting. Also highlights how little I know about Bob Marley. And I've been ragged on that by our advisor. Well, I see, um, you see my little painting back there? I painted it. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah. Alyssa, Alyssa has so many talents. Um, <laughs> oh, it was a paint by number. Don't get it twisted. It was paint by numbers. <laughs> again, Alyssa has so many talents. Because um, <laughs> I would not be painting by number. Um I think the last thing that we can mention, there's so many examples of colorism that we could talk about um, within and outside of the African-American community. But this one in particular is within the African-American community. And I want to pull up a chair. Y'all sit down. Mm -hmm. Why on anybody's earth, world, spirit, realm, circle of hell, would y'all have Kamala Harris replacing Ruby Bridges in a picture. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, there was this image circulating right after the results of the election were announced, even though supposedly there's still a question mark on that. And Kamala Harris is VP elect. And they had her walking on the sidewalk. So there's a, a common painting of Ruby Bridges, who was the one of the first Black people to integrate a, se- a segregationist school walking along a sidewalk, and you can see her shadow behind her. These people replaced Ruby Bridges, a dark-skinned Black girl, with Kamala Harris in her pumps, in her suit, (laughs) and said, this is progress. And it's like, why are we sitting in this colorist, liberal imagination Mm -hmm. that progress is a light-skinned, biracial woman utterly replacing right a black girl like the only thing that's left of ruby bridges is a shadow and even that is like what like what Mm. a shadow like you know dark-skinned people that is that is one of the like like are you serious like are you serious are we doing this here in the year 2020 we are this is why we're talking about it um (laughs) and (laughs) i'm still doing this we're still doing this. And I think we will see there's images of Kamala sitting on the bus with Rosa. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen those paintings. That's already of, happened or are you? Yes. Oh, Lordy. Or the like, she's sitting at a table with Harriet and Fanny Lou Hamer and Ella Baker. Have you seen this, Rosa? I think, I, I mean, I heard. <laughs> All right. So someone's going to be annoyed at me, but I. <laughs> you know, someone said that Michelle Obama walked so so Kamala Harris could run. <laughs> and it's like, uh, and I mean, so this is on another podcast and, and, you know, one of the co-hosts was like, well, I would say that Shirley Chisholm did the walking, but I'm like, did she really walk? She, she you know, was in the Senate. You know, I don't think that's necessarily a good or a useful phrase, I suppose, especially considering that, Shirley Chisholm was a dark-skinned, unambiguously Black woman. 
And so to say that her work made space for Kamala Harris is a little confusing. I mean, yes, but why you got to do it like that? Like, <laughs> But it's, I mean, that's how it works, right? Like darker skinned women tend to pave the way, mm. make the way for all of us. Like our ancestors. Mm-hmm who were forced to come here, right? Made a way for all of us. So that part I'm like, I can agree with, but the replacing the image, like that is the part that trips me out or, or having her sit at the table with all of these like darker skinned women and being like, what they're doing is the same. Mm -hmm. Like why y'all disrespect my girl Harriet like that? Like don't do that to Harriet. Here we go, running over over the time again, as we are want to do. Want to do. But thank you all for listening. If you heard something today that made you laugh, helped you rethink something, or made you question yourself or the world around you, then we just have one ask. Share this episode with someone you think hasn't heard one before. Yes, we love hearing from you. And we've really appreciated the conversations that we've been having in our DMs, especially on Insta. Our DMs stay popping. Yes. Um, <laughs> so if you want to learn more, right, head to Zora'sDaughters.com and you'll find transcripts for our episodes, our bios, contact information, and ways to support the podcast. All right. Thanks, everyone. Be kind to yourselves. Bye. Bye.